and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Makes No Sense podcast, where we have unfiltered conversations with healthcare executives about what makes healthcare so complicated. We are your hosts, Dan, Abby, and Michelle with the Health Leaders Exchange. Three young professionals trying to explore the complexities within the healthcare universe. Let's get into it. This week, we talk with Dr. Mark Harrison, the CEO at Intermountain Healthcare, about the patient experience throughout the continuum of care. We want to understand the challenges and opportunities at the system-wide level and hear how Intermountain is working on its patient journey from start to finish. Oh, there's Dr. Hello. Harrison. Dr. Harrison. Hi. Hi. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. Oh, this is such a pleasure. Awesome. Well, as the CEO at Intermountain Healthcare and a fellow podcaster at A Healthier Future, we're excited you're here with us today. Uh, I'm sure I'll learn a couple of tricks from today's <laughs> podcast. And likewise, <laughs> would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. So my name is Mark Harrison, I'm president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare. And please call me Mark, not Dr. Harrison. Okay. 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 I like it. Thanks. I like Understood. it. So our first question, Mark, for you is in terms of the care continuum, can you describe for our listeners what the ideal process of care would be from start to finish in your eyes? So I think um, care needs to be delivered where, when, and how people want it and need it and have that happen in the context of affordability and equity. And so that that's a general answer, but none of those things actually happen on a regular basis in most of American healthcare. Right. Um, uh, care is really um, sort of fractured and transactional, and it isn't knit together very well. Um, totally. And I, so I think that continuum really is the key. Absolutely. And it seems to be something everyone's talking about, everyone's working on, but um, there seems to be a struggle to get that to work out how we all would realistically want it to. So also, we know you've served overseas um, and you were historically the CEO of Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi in the past. Can yeah. you describe your experience there and some learnings from working in healthcare in a different country? And was there anything you tried to incorporate into the American healthcare experience that you learned over there? What a great question. My wife and I um, took our family to Abu Dhabi and we were there for about five and a half years. Wow. And so we really moved there. And, you know, it, it's funny when people said, oh, are you, how long are you here for? We were able to tell them. We sold our house back in Ohio, which we did, and we moved our kids here. Um, our two younger kids went to school in Abu Dhabi and both graduated from uh, the American Community School in Abu Dhabi. That's their oh, cool. uh, Go Sand Vipers. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> really? You were committed. <laughs> and I said, you know, we're, we're really here and we're your neighbors and we want to be part of the community. And I think that actually was a really important thing. And mm-hmm. Probably the, the biggest lessons learned are the really the self-evident ones, which are people are people. We really love the Emiratis, and um, we appreciated the degree to which they wanted to change their society, and we appreciated the extent to which they found it unacceptable that people needed to fly 13, 14 hours to get really good health care, and mm. they, they wanted to fix that. I think that's what we would want for all of our families, too. For sure. We love the expatriate community really bright people from all over the world. They're working in interesting businesses and trying to move things and make them happen really fast. So a couple of things that I learned um, in addition to 
this idea that humans are humans is that um, diversity is awesome. True. And, um, you know, we may think we have seen diversity in an American city, but until I work there, I had, when we finally started the organization, when we opened it, we saw our first patient, we had 3,500 people and they represented 70 different countries. Wow. Um, and that was so beautiful um, yeah. to just watch all these people from different color skin, different national addresses, different languages that they spoke at home, although we all spoke English at work, um, different religious backgrounds. Everyone sort of focused on this idea of trying to provide really superb health care. That was powerful. And, you know, to come back to the States, and I love being back in the States, but to see the diversity we have, it actually looks quite paltry compared to what we experienced there. True. Maybe a, another lesson is that um, young people can do crazy, interesting, and important things. And <laughs> yeah, um, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. So we, um, you know, we had people in their 20s and 30s doing jobs that here in an established system, it would be people in their 40s and 50s and 60s doing. Right. And just with, I think, relatively minimal coaching and, and support, we had these young folks doing really world-class quality work and having enormous amounts of responsibility. And, you know, back here, whenever I hear somebody say, oh, she, you know, she seems a little young for that job or, he, you know, does he really have enough experience? My bias is actually to say, yep, let's give it a go. You know, yeah. let's, um, let's take Preach. a risk and let's see what this person can do. And that's really fun. I love that. That's right. Absolutely. I think yeah. that's how what's going to create change in the system as well is bringing in new ideas and perspectives and age groups into the mix as well. And not just, um, well, the same old, there's all these, yeah, old. there's yeah. all these barriers, um, not yet sort of things. Yeah, new opportunities. And we kind of hear from our exchange community too, like you want people taking care of patients that look like the patients. So, you know, even as a younger person myself, it's hard to relate sometimes to an older generation. You know, they, they're not faced with the same challenges that you're faced. So I think it's really interesting that you kind of just gave them the go ahead to, you may have the right idea here and let's just see how it plays. So we were having dinner last night with um, a couple of 20 somethings who are visiting out here in Utah, uh, friends of the family, and we didn't know them very well. And we were having this just great wide ranging conversation and sort of without taking a breath, one of them referred, said, said, well, my therapist told me and then went on to share some insight. Mm -hmm. And I realized, OK, this is a totally different generation because people my age, I'm 58, maybe more now than they did in the past. But people would have never just had that as a normal part of a conversation. And it's the fact that behavioral health issues are destigmatized, even as they are of great importance and something we really worry about, the different generation needs different realities in terms of the people who care for them and, the, and their, what their work environments look like. And I just love that. I thought it was great. True. That's so true. Yeah, absolutely. In that same sense of taking that mindset of the different things that you saw, um, how are you innovating at Intermountain Health, the care that patients receive. So, you know, healthcare is historically slow and process driven and it takes a long time for things to evolve. But, you know, with supply chain issues and fewer resources, there are fewer resources. So how are you um, kind of taking that mindset and innovating the care that your patients are receiving? You know, Abby, I'd like to say we, we like moved at light speed. And right. in some 
cases we do. And I think the pandemic really taught us how fast we could make change, whether it was around telehealth or AI powered tools, et cetera. We adopted yeah. very, very quickly. We are a big organization. We now have 60,000 people who work for us. We're across, you know, seven states. And, you know, you don't want your entire organization to move at light speed or else it can become uncoordinated. And sure. again, that system of care that really works for people, it does need some guardrails. I'll give you an example of a place where we um, moved really fast and it was uncomfortable and in the end, very valuable. When I got here, now it's six years ago in August, I one of the many things that I discovered, most of which were fabulous, um, is that um, our organization was oriented towards value-based care. People wanted to keep people well and give, be paid for it. And we think that's the secret sauce of what American healthcare needs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, our incentives were all still volume-based, essentially all of them, Right. which is very true for most of American healthcare. The average system takes only two or 3% risk of all their total business, and most of that's only upside risk. So most mm -hmm. folks are really stuck in volume still. Yeah. So we very quickly changed and realigned towards value-based care with these panel-based um, approaches. We now have a million people essentially in that model. Oh, wow. wow. We've done that yes. in about three and a half years. Wow. Um, right. And That's we huge. could add another so 250,000 people. Well, um, it works clinically. It works from a quality standpoint. The doctors like it, the patients like it, and it's financially viable. So I think that's working, right? I mean, I, that's, oh, yeah. yeah, that's a success. That's, I would, I would, I would determine that. I think three years for a million people to move in that direction—that's pretty good. Pretty quick, but yeah. Some some days it felt slow. I will, I will confess. You know, being an impatient person, Abby. Right. Just kind of taking telehealth, for example. You know, during COVID, you basically had to flip had to launch your telehealth, no matter if it was perfect, no matter if it was where you wanted, you know, systems had to launch it. Hearing, you know, we have a CIO group and they've shared, you know, their thoughts on it. Our CFOs have shared, you know, the financial risk or whatever on it. So kind of just hearing all of the consensus on slow things can move fast in healthcare is, you know, comforting yes. as a patient as well to know that things will progress and they will progress for the better at some point. You just have to give it time. You do, but um, one of the things that bugs me, and I'll be really candid about this, is that most volume-based systems have moved back away from telehealth as quickly as they can because they make their money by doing in-person care. Yeah. Mm. And if we thought this was good for people, if we thought it was particularly good for Zs and millennials who um, are digitally competent and they want to be mm -hmm. able to, to be as mobile as possible and manage their own care. I think it's really disrespectful to back away from things as quickly as we have as, a, yeah. as an industry. And um, it adds unnecessary cost. And it actually also distresses me that a lot of systems have lobbied the government to be the paid the same for a televisit as an in-person visit. Uh, because we actually know right. it costs less to produce the televisit. So we right. should be charging less. Um, right. So I, I'm excited about where this is going, but I think it actually needs to move faster, to tell you the truth. Oh, well, you actually kind of, one of my questions was how it, we've heard that there, there was like a peak and then there was a slump. So just, you know, a lot of people look to Intermountain to kind of gauge on what the next move is. And so you kind of just answered that question of what y'all are doing in the telehealth space. We continue to push really hard. 
There's a woman named Marty Lolly, who's the new CEO of Select Health. She's really dynamic. Um, she's a driven person. I think you guys would probably enjoy speaking with her. She's She is a real health leader. She's a visionary. She'll be bringing forward a bunch of digital first products in the very near future that um, will highly incentivize people to use things like tele and digital first. It might not be the perfect product for somebody old and with medical you know, issues like me, sure. um, but for somebody who is young and bulletproof and invincible, um, I think it would be probably great. Um, We'd like to thank you. Yeah. In, enjoy it while you can, Daniel. Okay. So um, it, it does not I already feel like until, it's crumbling, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long well, two years. Well, it seems like yeah. that's who telehealth is designed for. It's, you know, it's not designed necessarily for the older generation to strictly utilize. You know, they have to frequently go into these hospitals to see their doctor, to do blood, to do all of those things. So just, it's like annexing an entire generation almost from healthcare if you strip that away. Yeah, I will say that um, I agree with what you said for the most part, Abby. I, we're actually using tele as part of in-office visits also. And this has actually happened relatively recently. So there was a an older patient who was in one of our offices and um, she was feeling poorly and it was determined that her congestive heart failure had decompensated and that she was fluid overloaded and she was breathing hard and she was sick. Mm, um, right. In a historic model, we would have said, okay, um, we're just gonna go ahead and send you to the, her oxygen saturations were down, her heart rate was up, she just felt terrible. We would have sent her to the emergency department and she certainly would have been admitted maybe to the ICU. And in a value-based model where we were really coordinated, we had a telehealth consult of a cardiologist. One of our cardiologists helped the primary care doctor. They did an online evaluation. They pre prescribed some diuretic and she got rid of some fluids and they sent her home with a home monitoring and um, mm -hmm. really close follow-up. So this older person who maybe would have ended up in the ICU where she very well may have become delirious and she would have needed sedation, which made her stay there longer. And there's this like, whole right. cascade uh, for a fragile person. She stayed in her own home. She never got admitted to the hospital. Uh, she never got disoriented. She never lost her routine. She was near her family. That's a virtuous cycle. That's actually how coordinated care should work. And Tella was actually a part of that for an old person. Maybe she wouldn't have initiated it herself, but it was part of her care. Okay. And I that's think actually that's really, really interesting. Cool. I've never, yeah, I've never heard it um, be used in a sense like that of like in conjunction, you know, at the office. When I got here, um, one of the many excellent things I found was that we had the beginnings of really great telehealth. But what they weren't done is they hadn't been pulled together. They were in all different programs across the enterprise. I said, okay, our, at that point we had 23 hospitals. I said, okay, our 24th hospital is going to be a virtual hospital. That's what we have now. And there are now more than 50 inpatient services that we provide. Uh, so we can actually support a PA in a small rural emergency department who's doing CPR on somebody who had a heart attack. Um, that person can be guided by one of our emergency doctors at a major center. Or a woman who's had a baby that the baby's struggling, a neonatologist can help guide the resuscitation and determine whether the child wow. needs to go to a, a higher level of care. Or if somebody's having a behavioral health crisis in a place where there's not a psychiatrist, one of our behavioral health experts can actually do a tele-evaluation to determine whether that person's safe to go home 
or whether they need to be transported to be admitted to a hospital somewhere. In the like business language, we do B to C. So we'll, you know, if I have a sore throat, I can get seen by tele. But if my cardiologist needs a neurology consult for me, or if I'm admitted to an ICU, one of our intensivists will watch me in um, that ICU, regardless of whether it's a big tertiary quaternary ICU, whether it's a, a small rural hospital. So we got the whole spectrum and it works so well. I bet. Isn't that cool? Do you see that kind of yeah. being the, like, the future of healthcare? Because I mean, we talk about like a crisis in the workforce and we're losing nurses and physicians. So like, I, to me, that just seems not an easy fix, but a realistic kind of fix to a problem that we're facing. So, you know, it's, it's, it totally is the future. I was rounding in our telehospital. I was talking to one of the really experienced ICU nurses who helps do our telecritical care now across, I think we're in about 50 hospitals now. We're about, mm-hmm. in, well. um, we have 20, some of ours, plus another 30 that we actually do for other systems and other. And um, I asked her what her favorite part of the job was, and we have a resource for the nurses in these hospitals. So if they have a question, and so let's say you're a young grad, new grad, you're 24 right. years old, and it's you know two o'clock in the morning, and this patient looks kind of crummy, and you don't know what to do next, you can just talk to one of our tele-ICU nurses. They'll kind of walk you through right. it because they're experienced. And the level of comfort that gives to people um, is just enormous, and it's good for the patients, which is right. the bottom line, right? It's the most important yeah, thing, I think. Really cool. Yeah, it's. I yeah. think it's really important to really treat people like people like you mentioned earlier. You know, you learn from the beginning that you need to treat humans like humans. And I feel like that makes sense to me, makes sense to most people. And it seems really simple. But for some reason, it's really hard to recreate that kind of mentality in service. Yeah, Speaking, I think that's culture, right? I will say that I'm as proud of our clinicians and who they are as human beings as anything about Intermountain Healthcare. Um, these are great people. They're highly skilled. They're, I think we've become, over time, we're a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all culture. Um, and I love this I idea. I like that. that. Yeah, so it's good to be a learn-it-all, right? Yeah. You know, objectively speaking, we're regarded as one of the premier systems in terms of quality in the world. Yet, eager to share everything we know with other people. There's no secret sauce. Our folks are constantly eager to learn a new trick, think of a different way mm-hmm. of doing things, right? find out a way to make people more comfortable, you know, our patients more comfortable. And I, I love that about them. Yeah. And I think that's definitely represented in your leadership and in everything. And just the way you're talking, I can tell that there's a lot of passion. I can see that there's a lot of people that are going to be reflecting Thanks. that. But I know you say that you are, you want to learn it all, but I think you should also show it off and that's good to see. But uh, I'm, <laughs> We mentioned like all of the stuff in the beginning and the kind of middle of the spectrum of care. And I kind of want to talk about the things that don't get mentioned too much. I feel like it's like the end part of healthcare. So like a lot of patients, they come in and they either have a good experience, they don't. But then when they leave, most patients are like, they seem fine when they're leaving because they're leaving the hospital. But then afterwards, it becomes a big pain point. They get really frustrated, unsatisfied because they have to either reschedule like a follow-up or they have to get medication somewhere or they get sent somewhere else. And then the Mm -hmm. billing, they have no idea what the billing is about. They get billed like these crazy bills or whatever, and they don't have any education on what that is. So do you think there's like a need to kind of improve the post-visit process for patients? And do you guys do anything differently with that? So those are 
separate but touching issues. And I'll say the second one, you know, how billing works and transparency is a huge challenge for the industry. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, soon after the transparency rules came out uh, last winter, Intermountain completely complied across all sites as quickly as we could. You know, there was some risk to that because, you know, once you made pricing transparent, there there was you know, potential that you were way too expensive in some areas. Right. right. There'd be some race to the bottom in terms of you know, what you're charged. And I kind of just said, well, what the hell? You know, we we say we're interested in transparency. We should we should go ahead and do this. And my team was completely right. supportive and made us a little nervous. It ended up being great. We found out some areas where we weren't competitive and we needed to go ahead and, and change things for patients you know, to drop mm-hmm. prices. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, but we also were gratified to see in most areas that we were extremely competitive. Um, hopefully we made other people drop their prices too so they could compete with <laughs> us. And that's, that's a good thing. I think you know what we need to get to is a place where we can predictively tell people exactly what things are going to cost. You would never buy a car and you say, hey, I really love it, and I'm going to get all these features, and you know, six months from now, you can tell me how much money that was, and then I just have to pay it. That's not, that's not right, okay. Right, exactly. Um, it's a bad feeling. <laughs> it's a bad feeling. So we started a company called Telica, which is a low-cost imaging company. We're using to disrupt ourselves, and we will use it to disrupt the industry as a whole. And um, so we now have three sites. We're going to be opening, I think, another eight sites this year. Wow. And you know when you go in that your MRI will be no more than $550, including the read, regardless of um, whether you need contrast or not. And your CT, same thing, no more than $350, including the read, including the um, you know, whether you need contrast or not. And it's been a game changer because that that's way lower than our other prices. And it's yeah. forcing us to provide lower quality care. And it's making others in the markets that we're in really anxious. And I'm glad to hear that because um, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're charging way too much money for straight up imaging. True. So, um, you know, to your point, that's sort of that point number two around transparency. And then the other is that transitions of care are super dangerous. So when you go from the ICU to the floor, you know, is the person really ready? Can they decompensate? Are they going to bounce back? And there are all kinds of techniques you use to ha- keep that from happening. But what you mentioned, that discharge to home is a really risky piece, um, particularly mm-hmm. if you're frail or older or living by yourself. And so we really don't let people get out the door without a follow-up. Probably the single greatest predictor of not being readmitted is having a follow-up appointment within the first week after discharge. Right. And so we are really compulsive about that at this point. And mm-hmm. um as such, Intermountain has one of the very lowest rates of readmissions to hospital um, in the country. Oh, wow. and, Good for um, you guys. Ne- never perfect. Um, and we'll be obsessed about continuing to do better. But I think that's a, a something that everyone should do. Agreed. 100%. I think that point was really good to mention about how you guys are very compulsive and obsessive about getting new appointments set before someone leaves. So I think that's very important. Yeah, and the whole transparency part, we've heard so many organizations say that they're not um, complying with that and they'd rather just pay the the fines associated with it. So I think that's very telling that you guys are ahead of the game. Okay, so shame on them, right? Yes, yes. I mean, even if that were true, the idea you'd want to admit that, I mean... I mean, it's unbelievable to me. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I actually 
told CMS leadership I thought they should be much tougher about finding people. They they've levied they've levied the first couple of fines and they're trivial. They're under a million dollars. It's right. It's pathetic. I mean, if people right. aren't willing to be transparent about what they're charging other human beings, then they should really get in trouble. And mm, healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it just also seems good. like to like emphasize the point that you all are truly patient first. So making sure they know that they're paying up front making sure as much as you can they're not readmitted to the hospital. So it just it emphasizes Intermountain's kind of mission towards the patient of it is human to human, humans first. So I, I yeah, think it's really our, admirable that you are doing that. Well, thanks. Um, our our um, mission is to help people live the healthiest lives possible. And what right. that generally means is um, keep them out of our hospitals, keep them in the least restrictive right. environment they can be in, keep them near their families, you know, keep them near their jobs, um, you know, near their churches, you know, whatever is important to them. Um, I think that's, it isn't, our mission isn't to fill every uh, bed with a human being. Right. Um, yeah. Right, you know <laughs> you, you should try and put yourself out of business. Now, the fact is that we all have things happen. Um, right. And, and we're all super grateful for skillful acute care when we need it, but let's try not to need it more than we, um, than we have right. to. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, so with that being said, do you think, cause we kind of discussed the whole patient journey its entirety and we've gotten your opinion on it. And we just want to know, do you think we're currently living in an ideal world of that kind of patient journey? And what changes would you kind of make big or small to kind of improve that spectrum? Even the systems that are the best at, at this, and I think we're among them, we are so far from an ideal world. There's still friction. There's last, lack of transparency at times. Um, I think people aren't always included in medical decision-making to the extent that they should be. There's asymmetry of information between providers and patients. Um, I think we just need to have a relentless customer focus on this. And there, it's okay for us to think about patients as consumers and customers as as well as patients, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, there's something right. very sacred actually about, you know, the relationship between you when you're sick and somebody who's taking care of you. That's be beautiful and sacred, but you also have choice and you have to, you've got a financial skin in the game. So you're a consumer and a customer as well. And we need to take lessons from other industries about how to, to, mm -hmm. to do that and do that well. Um, on top of the great work that you know is getting done in healthcare, I think that's the transformation that needs to happen, a consumerism focus. And then we, as, a, as an enterprise, as an industry, we need to go through that digital transformation that other industries have gone through. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think about our future state as being a clicks and mortar health system. So it's hard assets where we need them, but also using digital to keep people connected to us and provide prospective guidance for their healthcare, and to hopefully answer lots of questions in frictionless, universally accessible ways. And I think that's a big part of achieving health equity as well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what yeah. you said about relentless customer focus. That's a quote. I'm going to keep that one. <laughs> All right. Keep that one. <laughs> Hold us accountable for it because we're we're not there yet, but we're going to work really hard at it. If I there's believe anyone it. who can do it, it's you guys. That's that's yeah. why you're on our podcast today. So. 
thank you for doing all the hard work and um, helping move the needle. For sure. Just the way that you describe how healthcare should be is what a lot of people, you know, who go to these exchanges say, but the way that it's being done is reflected. It's like nice to hear, you know, that it's like you have your ears to the ground, it seems like it's yeah. just working. Well, thank you. That's, that's a really nice compliment. And, you know, it, it's not me. It's the 60,000 people who actually do the job. Um, and I'm proud of right. it. It's a privilege. I hear that. Well, have a really nice day. You too. Thanks so much, Mark. You too. Have you a too. great 4th of July weekend. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, you yeah. too. Have a good long weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.